Thanks, Vance. All right, I got a couple of announcements. The first announcement, and this this is the same sheet that was read from on Sunday morning. The first announcement says Robbie will be gone for the next two weeks. No, it didn't say that. But that's what people heard because they weren't paying attention. It says Robbie will be gone next Sunday. I'll be out of town Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I will be here tonight, Thursday night, next Tuesday night, and next Thursday night. I will not be gone for two more weeks. So, pay attention. Second, I mean, I must have had, I had several people who did not hear that correctly. Makes me wonder that if they couldn't hear something as simple as that correctly, do they ever hear what I teach correctly? You know, we laugh about this, we meaning pastors, when we get together about how many times people come up to, oh, I remember when you said A, B, and C, and I said no. I never said A, B, and C. I said X, Y, and Z. And, you know, it's amazing, and it happens to every pastor. We just wonder if anything ever gets out there accurately. The picnic's coming up on October 22nd at Orlando, so prepare for that. And that's going to be in a couple of weeks, and hopefully we'll have a little bit cooler weather, although it's been pretty nice this last week. And all the information will be posted and sent out on on, um, emails. And then the Israel tour is coming up next year. We're still working on some issues there before we get things finalized. And then I just want to say how pleased I am about what happened uh, over the last couple of weekends at the Fort Bend County Fair. There were probably 15, 16 people from the congregation who went out there. There were some people who've never given the gospel to anybody, and they were just just uh, amazed when they gave the gospel, and they were so excited about it. So it was that's that's what it's about. It's getting that training, being equipped to do the ministry, uh, which is the role of the pastor. So that was really good to hear that. And um, another thing I want to put in your thinking caps is that Jeff Phipps will be going back to Brazil for two weeks in December, and he ought not be going alone. And and even though that's only a couple of months away, and maybe you're not able to um, make a decision to do that so rapidly, but that's that is something that you, people ought to consider: is going with him and getting further training, uh, going down there and helping out with what what he's been doing in Brazil. That's just a tremendous opportunity to get out there and be and be an active part of the body of Christ and being used as part of the mechanism in the body of Christ to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So I just want to encourage you to pray about that and to think about that. I think that's about it for our our announcements. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and so that you can get ready to focus on the teaching tonight and studying the Word and that God the Holy Spirit can make this uh, profitable in strengthening you in your spiritual growth. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, just such a great privilege that you have granted to us as church-age believers to be used to minister to one another within the body of Christ, to be used in encouraging and strengthening one another, praying for one another, teaching, admonishing one another, all these various commands that we have in Scripture that, that indicate a healthy, thriving group of believers. And, Father, we're just thankful for those who were able to get out for the uh, training at the uh, county fair the last couple of weeks and for the way you used them. And, Father, we just pray that you would continue to encourage people in the congregation to step out and learn how to uh, help and be a part of this and get training that will be uh, used by you in many different ways. Father, we pray that tonight as we think through this passage, think through background issues, that you'd help us to, to grasp these issues and understand them, that, that we may build solid doctrine on these ideas. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Actually, 1,100 people were given the gospel in the last two, two weekends. Think about that. 11, not 11, not 110, 1,100 people were given the gospel and, and heard that. That's just amazing. That is, uh, that's just, just really tremendous. So I'm very encouraged by that. All right. Well, we're back in, um, our passage. That's not my notes for tonight. Where are my notes for tonight? Um, hmm. Okay. Two sets of things here. Can't separate the pages. Okay. So we're in Judges chapter 10. I've been gone a couple of weeks. It's been three weeks since the last lesson. So uh, for those who listen online at a later time and they just have one day between the lessons, we're going to review a little bit. And because I want to bring out some other things, it's it's always fascinated me how there are times where I can be teaching, like I am now teaching Philippians on a Thursday night, Ephesians Sunday morning, Judges, and we're getting into an, arena, an area in in Ephesians that coincides with the same topic in Judges, same issues, related issues. So, and it's not something for the faint of heart who want to just hear nice little Bible stories. So it's, but it's going to help us to give, have discernment about what's going on, on around us. And, it, and I, it's not that I haven't taught this before. I just haven't taught it in a while. So just a little review. The title tonight is we're going to look at the creator creature distinction. Now I stopped before we got into this on Sunday morning in Ephesians. So part of what I did was just brought over some of the notes and slides I had created for Sunday morning because we need to work through this a couple of times. This is just uh, really foundational for understanding uh, what is going on in terms of the world and the angelic revolt and all of these, all of these different things. And fundamental to the angelic revolt is a rejection of the creator-creature distinction. And that is what underlies Israel's basic problem all through the period of the judges. And not just that, it goes on until 
until they um, uh, are taken out in the Babylonian captivity. And then they just have another form of the problem when they get into legalism after that. Uh, God spanked them hard when they went to Babylon, and they never were sucked into uh, the fertility religions and idolatry again, but they got sucked into a more subtle form of idolatry, which was uh, the religiosity of legalism. So if it's not one thing, Satan's going to pull something else. But this is important. So what we did, we started two or three weeks ago, two or three lessons back, rather, with the uh, sort of the transitional judges that are mentioned in the first five verses, Tola and Jair. They're called minor judges, but their ministry is significant. They're only minor because of the amount of space that's given to them, not their significance, and that they... Uh, uh, Tola, the first one, delivered Israel in verse 1, and for 23 years he judged Israel. We're just not given a whole lot of details, but what that indicates is that this is a relatively normal period of time. There's no enemy that's coming in that's uh, crossing the border, taking territory, taking captives, stealing uh, their produce and the products of the fields like they did with, uh, with Gideon. There are no battles, so it seems to be a relatively normal period. God is providing them grace, but again, there's still no indication of the people turning to God. And then the second judge is Jair. He's a Gileadite, and the major judge coming up is is Jephthah, who is also a Gileadite. And this is part of the author's emphasis on the focal point shifting to the Transjordan area uh, in the area uh, of Gilead. So these judges also have a measure of of prosperity. So this is a very significant. Uh, significant thing. And that sets up the stage for the beginning of the Ammonite oppression, which began in verse 6. So we get the background there. Last time I talked about verses, uh, I think we went from 6 down through um, 6 down through maybe 18. I think maybe we got that far, but I want to go back and pick up some underlying ideas in that section uh, today. So what we saw in verses 6 through 9, actually all the way down through 18, is the intensification of Israel's apostasy uh, from what it's been. And we've seen that this is the trend, but each cycle it seems as if they their apostasy, their rejection of God, they abandon God, they abandon the Mosaic law, turn their back on it, which makes them... Uh, unfaithful to God, which goes, which is called by a, especially a very harsh term. It's called uh, adultery, spiritual adultery. That's what spiritual adultery is. It is turning away from God and worshiping the creation rather than the creature, creator. There are only two options in life. You're either going to worship the creator or you're going to worship the creation, some aspect or element of the creation. And that underlies, uh, underlies everything. So they turn to false religions as a source of prosperity and happiness. 
And the idea of fertility, we often uh, sort of, is almost euphemistic, but it's the idea that they are going to be prosperous because in an agricultural uh, environment, fertility is important. You're going to have more crops. Your uh, uh, sheep are going to have more babies. Your goats are going to have more babies. Your cattles are go- cattle are going to be healthy. And so there's going to be great prosperity, and you're going to make more money. It's just the early form of the prosperity gospel. So you can think about that when you watch um, T, uh, what is it? TBN or any of the, most of the other channels. There's some few good Bible teachers on television, but there's a lot of them that are into the prosperity gospel. And it's just an ancient form of the, of the fertility cult. So we saw in Judges 10.6 that, um, a key summary statement. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served or enslaved themselves to the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And I punctuate this with a colon. And the reason is, as I read through various commentaries and statements that, that, that are good, I'm not knocking them, but you have these five similar statements, the gods of these different nations. And each nation had their gods and goddesses, their pantheon. But often, as I pointed out in the last lesson, they're just different names for the same entity. And the, the names change. For example, one you're most familiar with is in uh, Greek mythology, your your chief god is Zeus, and in Latin, I mean, in the Roman Empire, it was uh, Jupiter. So you just had different names, but basically they're the same myths and the same stories, but they just changed the name of the of the key players. So in in all of these, the 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 summary or generic name might be the Baals, the Baalim, the plural, and the asterisks that they represent this idea of, of fertility. And they're manifested in each of the nations that, are, that surround Israel and that are influencing them um, to get involved with their gods and goddesses. So Israel just keeps committing the same sins. It's cyclical. The sons of Israel, we read in Judges 3.7, uh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice how it defines evil. It defines evil in terms of rebellion against God, that which is antagonistic and hostile to God, worshiping something other than God. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot or abandoned the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Now, you, we would be castigated by the world around us if we used evil the way the Bible does because we would be describing probably most uh, academic professors as evil because what they are promoting is, is this kind of idolatry, the worship of the creature rather than the creator. Most scientists would be labeled as evil because they hold to uh, forms of evolutionary thought which are 
uh, hostile to God. You're wor- they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so when we need to think in these kinds of categories, those as believers, because these are the biblical categories. This is how God uses the term. And so you can look at various uh, people who are in government, who are in business, who are involved in education, and they are evil people. And they may be very nice, and they may have great personalities and great talents, and they may be quite entertaining, But from a divine viewpoint framework, they are evil because they promote the worship of the the creation rather than the creator. Verse 12, in chapter 3, verse 12, we have the statement again, now the sons of Israel again did evil. And so there's this this, um, drumbeat again and again and again. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Judges 4.1, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Judges 6.1, the beginning of the Gideon episode, then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a result, each time God turns them over to some form of foreign oppression. And that reminds us of the five cycles of discipline that are outlined in Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, first 12 verses, tells us that God is going to bless Israel in several ways if they're obedient. And then the flip side is that God is going to chastise them, going to discipline them harshly uh, with, with droughts, with famine, with disease, with uh, just the, the collapse of society, foreign attacks, foreign assaults, foreign invasions, ultimately leading to the fifth cycle, which is their removal. But it's not a peaceful removal. There's going to be, there's a prediction there of how violent this will be, and it predicts cannibalism, that mothers would be uh, boiling their own children, eating their own children. I mean, it's a horrible thing to think about, but that's the consequence of sin. Judges 10.6, our passage and then Judges 13.1, when we get to Samson, then the sons of Israel again did evil uh, in the sight of the Lord. Now, the question is, why is this so bad? What is going on here? We have to dig beneath the surface here and think about this a little bit. Uh, this is so bad because, number one, they're not learning their lesson. They continue uh, to rebel, and there's no sign of repentance, of change, of turning to the Lord. That's what biblical repentance is. It's not necessarily remorse, although remorse may accompany it, but repentance is more of an action. You can have people with all kinds of remorse, and they never change. They're sorry they got caught there, and that's a lot of what's going on with Israel. There's maybe emotion. They cry out to God for deliverance, but there's no turning to God. So they just never learn their lesson. It goes on and on. Second is they're abusing the grace of God. Now, I know there's not anybody here who's ever taken advantage of the grace of God. Nobody that's ever abused the grace of God. I think that is just goes along with spiritual growth. It goes along with being a spiritual baby, and eventually, if we're stick, if we stick with the word, we'll grow out of that. But they continue to just abuse the grace of God, and yet God continues to 
forgive them, and to provide deliverers. Third, by their continual continual involvement with the fertility religions, uh, they were destroying their own culture. When the focal point is on material things as the uh, as the source of happiness and value and meaning in life, it will lead to self-destruction and cultural destruction. We cannot look at the things that God created as the source of meaning and purpose and value in life. We have to look to God for that. And then whether or not we have those details of life, we still have joy and happiness and stability. And then fourth, I save the worst for last, they're rejecting the creator-creature distinction. This is fundamental to every single non-biblical worldview, is the foundation is a rejection of the creator-creature distinction. I want to, I'm going to be taking some time with this uh, in Judges on Tuesday night and also Sunday morning because we're going to develop this. This is at the root of a number of issues that come up in the uh, paragraph we're in in, um, in in Ephesians. Now, in the previous lesson, when we went through the next uh, five or six verses and we talked about the, um, you know, God's, God's wrath on them and... Um, uh, let me see where the anger of the Lord, verse seven, burned against Israel. And I talked about the fact that this was uh, an anthropopathism, and I mentioned this term, the impassibility of God. And you have to understand that the central word there is the p a s s. That's the root of the concept of passion. Now, when we talk about passion, I'm not going to get into this too much tonight, but we'll get into this. We have to understand this. When we talk about passion in this way, we are not using the word in the way it's normally used. And we may talk about some romance that's very passionate. And we may talk about somebody who just got very angry and they were very passionate. We may talk about some a politician who just got very passionate about a topic. That's not quite what we're talking about. It's related, but it's not what we're talking about. Um, a more technical sense of the word passion that you have heard is when you hear somebody refer to the, maybe they refer to a passion play. They're talking about, the passion of Christ on the cross. It relates to suffering, and it relates to something more than just emotion, okay? But this is controversial, as I pointed out the last time. And what's interesting, just to give you a little preview of coming attractions, is that in the history of Christianity, it doesn't matter whether you're a Calvinist or Arminian, whether you were an Augustinian or a Pelagian, whether you were... Uh, on the uh, on one side of issues or the other side of issues through the early church, the Middle Ages, and up until the early 19th century, you can quote Wesley, you can quote Jonathan Edwards. They're on polar opposites theologically. Everyone believed in the impassibility of God. But it's interesting, and I haven't done enough study to be able to pinpoint this precisely, 
But we had a shift to where we started worshiping human emotions as a result of the influence of Sigmund Freud in the mid-19th century and the rise of psychology. And living on this side of Freudianism, this side of the worship of emotion, people began to say, well, God has these real emotions. In other words, they're recreating God in their own image. And there's a failure to understand, as I pointed out the last time, there's a failure to understand that these are figures of speech to help us understand something about God. It does not mean that God has emotion in any way or sense or feeling, uh, uh, any sense that, that we think about that term. In fact, the English word emotion didn't get invented until uh, you get into the uh, late 18th century. It's not a word. There's no corollary word for that uh, in the Bible at all. So we have to talk about this, and one of the reasons I'm getting into it in, in Ephesians is because at the end of the paragraph, we have the statement, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And so people get this idea that the Holy Spirit of God is grieving, he's wringing his hands, he's weeping over uh, people's sins, and that that's totally false. Uh, people today, it sounds weird because people today just read these things and they think that God has these emotions. And that was never accepted as part of biblical orthodoxy until you get into the 19th century, and it's actually related to a much more uh, difficult concept that came to the forefront about 20 years ago called the open, open, it was called open theism, the openness of God. And that uh, that indicates that there can be change in God. If God is not impassable, he's passable. And that indicates that God can change. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it can't change. So we're going to have to get into some of these issues. And part of it is uh, understanding that the creator-creature distinction. So this is taking you, for those who are new believers and may be listening, this may be... Uh, good piece of steak you have to chew on. It may be a little tough, uh, but uh, for those who've been around a while, you need to take the next step up in coming to a comprehension of some of these things. So this, this, is, this is very important, uh, this rejection of the creator-creature distinction. And this becomes clear when we understand what's really going on with these gods and goddesses in the ancient world and the ancient pantheons. So you have these five different religious systems, but they're all basically the same. They're all buying into the same sort of fertility worship. They all deny the creator-creature distinction, and they're all ultimately lead into... Uh, human sacrifice, and we'll look at some of the passages on that. And the reason I bring that in is because it's this kind of a worldview that ha that shapes the thinking of Jephthah. Jephthah is the one, that when we get into chapter 11, he's the one who makes this vow, and often people talk of it as a rash vow, and I probably used that term when I wrote my master's thesis on it, but I, more that I've reflected on it, I don't think it's a rash vow. It is something that came out of his um, sort of pop culture, biblical Ill illiteracy or Torah illiteracy uh, 
that shaped his thinking because he of his background we'll get into that in chapter 11 he's not in a place where there's any teaching or any instruction is he a believer he is he's a believer the spirit of god comes upon him and he is listed among those heroes of the faith in in hebrews chapter 11 but he did not know much about what the Torah thought. And that's the way a lot of Christians are. We hear a lot of Christians who say things about the Bible, and you wonder what Bible they've been reading. And it's pop Christianity. It's pop evangelicalism. and doesn't have anything to do with Bible doctrine or what the Scripture says at, at all. Now, this cycle... Of going, of turning to the evil of the, uh, of Baalism, just to use that term as a summary for all of this, is seen in the summary statement at the beginning and the introduction of Judges in Judges 2.12. They uh, forsook or abandoned the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them which is the word for worship. They're worshiping them, and they provoke the Lord to anger. So at the very root of this, number one, it's a rejection of the creator-creature distinction. Romans 1, 22 to 25 describes this. I think this is a historical reference in this passage. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Human viewpoint is foolishness to God. Divine viewpoint is foolishness to man. Romans 1.23, they changed or exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They're worshiping the creature, the creation, rather than the God who made it. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves and exchange the truth of God for the lie. Notice that. Where did we see that phrase recently? I closed with it in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 25, I think it's 25, on Sunday morning, that the phrase there isn't lying as it's translated in most translations. It's the lie. That, that we have put off the lie. Positionally, we have taken off the lie of human viewpoint and human viewpoint religion, and we are to speak the truth to one another. And contextually, what that means is we're to talk, uh, our, our, what we talk about, the context of, content of our language is to conform to Scripture. So, they have exchanged the truth of God, which is that which is from divine revelation, for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we have to understand what the lie is. And that's what we'll be talking about in two weeks when I come back for Sunday morning. We'll be talking about the lie. We'll talk about it more next Tuesday night as well. 
So this rejection is documented in a number of other passages, these other gods and goddesses of the nations around them. 2 Kings 17.17, Then they made their sons and daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So this is indication. It's part of the worship of all of these different gods, whether it's Chemosh or Milcom or Baal. They all are involved in child sacrifice. Judges 16.23, the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. Dagon was also uh, interchangeable with Baal, uh, in the uh, documents discovered at Ugarit. Ugarit is located in Syria, and this was an excavation in the early part of the 20th century where they discovered a, a treasure trove of, uh, of documents that were written in a, uh, a, in Canaanite, which was a related language to Hebrew. Then, uh, 1 Kings 11.5 for Solomon. Uh, Solomon turns to all these idols, and he brings them in and sets up temples for all of them in Jerusalem. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. So this isn't this problem with these. Uh, gods and goddesses, these nature gods, doesn't end, uh, doesn't end with Jephthah or with Samson or even for David. Uh, Solomon's going to bring them back and they continue to plague Israel until God takes them out under the fifth cycle of discipline. But we have to understand that behind these gods and goddesses, uh, you, I don't know about you, but when I was in elementary school, I had some books on the mythology. You would learn these various myths, the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. And you, you don't realize in, in a secular context that people, the way it's presented is people are just making up these myths, these origin stories and who these gods and goddesses are and as if they're just stories. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there are demons behind these gods and goddesses. So Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17 states, they made him jealous, that is, made God jealous, they being Israel, made God jealous with strange gods. They're going after other gods. They're unfaithful to the covenant with God. That's why it's called spiritual adultery, because it's an unfaithfulness to a covenant. Uh, verse 17, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they had not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread. So these gods and goddesses in the pantheons, whether you're talking about the Norse, the Norse gods and the Marvel heroes and the uh, Thor and all of those in the, uh, in the Viking pantheon and whether you're talking about uh, those in the in the Middle East, or whether you're talking about the Romans or the Greek gods, behind them are demons. All of that activity, involvement in false worship, whether it is Allah or whether it is Buddha, 
that it's all comes from the from the demonic and they all deny the cre- creator creature uh, distinction psalm 96 5 says for all the gods of the peoples are idols but the lord made the heavens notice that that's bringing out that distinction of the creator creation distinction the lord made the heavens and the earth when you look at these the origin myths that are in these other religions that they are the gods and goddesses that are involved in the creation are not creating anything from nothing they're not creating ex nihilo is the latin phrase only the god of the bible creates something out of nothing where there's nothing in existence whatsoever and god speaks the speaks reality into existence but this isn't just an old testament teaching you get it in the new testament as well in first corinthians 10 20 and 21 paul says no but i say that the things which the gentiles sacrifice that is the corinthians the greeks the sacrifice to the various gods and goddesses in the greek pantheon uh, I say that the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I bet not one of them would ever uh, admit that that's what they were doing is sacrificing uh, to demons. But that's what Scripture says. That's the divine viewpoint. And Paul says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There is a strong dichotomy, and believers have to hold to that. Otherwise, it's easy to get sucked into the paganism of uh, of the day, the paganism of the culture. So in Judges 10, 6, and 7, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the, the Baals and Ashtoreth, and the result is God brings discipline upon them in verse verse 7. We looked at this in detail last time. And I'll just when we look at these gods and goddesses, I want you to understand that uh, they are enslaving themselves and that the worship of these fertility gods is is extremely perverted. It involved uh, temple prostitution, it, it, whether female or male, it involved homosexuality. It involved the uh, literal sacrifice burning alive of infants and children. So this is a, an extremely horrible, horrible uh, system. But just because we don't see that kind of overt uh, perversion today, and trust me, I think that, that in parts of our culture, it's there. We just don't see much of it. And we're glad we don't see much of it. But it's, it's going on in the, in the background. And it's going to get, get worse, and it's be going to become uh, more and more available. So I'm skip, just skipping ahead here on these terms. So we looked at these gods and goddesses. And we talked about the the background and where they're from. We talked about the Amorites. Now, this is kind of a broad term, and the map here shows that you have the Amorites up here. This would be Kadesh is in Syria, a modern Syria, side entire or along the coast. That's Phoenicia, where Lebanon is today. And then from 
this upper area here, this would be about the boundary of, of um, uh, the northern part of the land. Uh, north of there and to the northwest, uh, excuse me, northeast, you have the Amorites. And so the, it was a term for Westerners, and, uh, in, and they're just one of the many uh, groups that uh, are involved with the, the um, come under the general heading of Canaanites. And their chief deity was Dagon, and all, he's related to Marduk. And so there's still this same problem of, of um, sac- human sacrifice there. Milcom is the Ammonite god, and uh, Solomon built a high place for him. So this is a problem. Josiah finally destroyed the high places on the Mount of Corruption, which is what we now call the Mount of Olives, described in Second uh, Kings 23.3. You have Chemosh, who's the god of the Moabites, and he's also worshipped by uh, child sacrifice, and this is uh, Molech, Chemosh, Baal are terms used inter- interchangeably. Second Kings 17.17 says, Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. So they, they would stoke these fires up, and they would put their children into those fires. And they practice divination, which is a form of demonism and contacting if there's any, you know, there's fraudulent divination. And then there's also divination that can involve uh, demonism. And they sold themselves to do evil. That's, at the t- that's much, much later. Second Kings 17, that's beyond Solomon. And so this is the problem in Judges all the way along. So I want to talk a little bit about the significance of this in terms of the creator-creature distinction by looking at what we see in the basic mythology, the basic uh, pantheons, the description of the gods and goddesses in Egyptian, uh, Babylonian or Mesopotamian religion, and also uh, in Canaanite religion. So in Egyptian cosmology, it's based on the idea that everything in the world, both human and divine, developed from one primordial substance. So you've got this primordial substance that in some cases it's water, and in the the Egyptian it's it's, they thought of it as a watery chaos that's just sort of eternal. How does does that even get there? Where did that begin? It's, it's a primitive form of the Big Bang Theory. You have matter that exists and matter in the form of the bodies of the gods and goddesses exists forever. And so then there comes this, this point, they don't talk about it or analyze it very much, uh, where out of this primordial substance, there's, um, which for the, for the Egyptians that was called uh, none, and this picture here on the left, this is none at the bottom holding up uh, the earth and the universe. So the, they looked at the ultimate reality as this uh, watery chaos, this watery abyss, and they looked at this as being surrounded in a bubble, 
in which the sphere encapsulated and represented the deepest mystery of the beginnings of life. But what I'm pointing out is they're looking at everything that they see and everything they experience in the universe starts from some sort of matter. It's either they're either going to have creation where gods fight it out and then one god kills the other god and makes the heavens and the earth from the body of the other god. There's no creation out of nothing. There is only the, the, this continuous existence of, uh, of something, and that becomes the source of everything. Then you have in Egyptian mythology the creator god Atum, and he evolves out of this primordial uh, watery chaos and abyss, and he gives birth uh, to the eight other high gods. So they multiply, and that's described in rather... Uh, vivid pornographic terms in some of the texts. And he creates Newt, who's the sky, and Gib is the earth, to separate the world from uh, noon, which is the watery chaos or the abyss. And uh, as it's described in some of the stories. And so he then, all of these different gods, which are really finite gods, they're not infinite and they're, they're not omnipotent, but they're part of holding everything together. And you, the worshippers trying to somehow placate the gods or motivate them to be good to them by the acts of what they do. In the book of Knowing the Evolutions of Ra, uh, the statement is made, uh, I am he who came into being in the form of the god Kepera, and I was the creator of that which came into being. And this is uh, never chair a form of the sun god Ray. So uh, Budge, who is a one of the Egyptologists of about a hundred years ago, said the word here rendered by um, that you by as evolutions here this word Kepera is derived from the root keper, which means to make or fashion or to produce something from something that already existed. And so we read the statement of how uh, you have Shu, the god of the air, uh, here is upholding uh, Newt, the sky goddess, and Gib, the earth god, reclines underneath and states, I come into being from primordial matter. So there's already this pre-existent stuff. And I appeared under the form of multitudes of things from the beginning. Nothing existed at that time, and it was I who made whatsoever was made. So, there, But, but wait a minute, you have primordial matter, so it's not ex nihilo. I made all the forms under which I appeared by means of the God soul, which I raised up out of new. Now, Babylonian uh, mythology is also um, very much the same. You find that there's a, a lot of, of similarities here, and it is described in the work uh, Enuma Elish, which is uh, a work that was discovered uh, archaeologically and gives the, their understanding of origins and, and uh, uh, the account. And so... Uh, you see in Numa Leash that there's no really clear distinction uh, between the gods and goddesses. 
on the one hand and the material universe on the other. The, the, the material universe seems to be created out of these gods, Apsu, Tiamat, and Mubu. They're all, all these names, Apsu, Tiamat, Mubu, are water deities. And, uh, there's a line in, um, in Enuma Elish that they mingle their waters. And as a result of that, you have further uh, creation. So this is another depiction of their uh, Babylonian uh, mythology. It was all designed to give justification to Marduk, who's the uh, patron god of Babylon. In uh, Numa Elish, we read, when above, that's the title, it's the first two words in, in um, Babylonian, Enuma Elish, the heaven had not yet been named, and below the earth had not yet been called by a name. When Apsu, primeval, so this is that primeval formless matter that's there. Uh, when Apsu, primeval, their begetter, Mumu and Tiamat, Tiamat refers to the chaotic waters. Uh, she who gave birth to them all still mingled their waters uh, together. So you see that there is a that they 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 have this eternal matter that that existed uh, when none of the other gods had been brought into being, when they had not yet been called by their names and their destinies had not yet been fixed. At that time, were the gods created within them? And this goes on for an undetermined amount of time. It says they lived many days, adding years to days. And then it says um, uh, they, the divine brothers gathered together. They disturbed Tiamat, that's the watery chaos, and assaulted their keeper. Yea, they disturbed the inner parts of Tiamat, moving and running about in the divine abode. So it just goes on describing... This creation, we go down here to the second paragraph, or the first paragraph, he strengthened his hold upon the captive gods. Then he returned to Tiamat, whom he had subdued. The Lord uh, trod upon the hinder part of Tiamat. So you have this violent fight, and the body of Tiamat is split in two, and which is described down here. Marduk splits Tiamat open like a muscle in two parts, Half of her is set in the heavens and formed the sky, and uh, the rest uh, forms the uh, forms the earth. A great structure, its counterpart he established, namely Ashara, that is the earth. So what what you see here is that, uh, and it just you see that that there's this this eternal matter of some type. And there's no real distinction between the creation and the gods. It's all part of the same thing. And so um, in this uh, critique here by Thorkild Jakobsen, who is uh, one of the foremost scholars on Anuma Elish, said that Anuma Elish assumes that all things have evolved out of water. This description presents the earliest stage of the universe as one of watery chaos. Now, you see some echoes in Genesis 1, 1, and 2 of these ideas, of the idea of there, there's, the earth was covered in the deep. In fact, the word for deep is a cognate to that word Tiamat. 
and you also uh, see that there's this that it's without form and void it's chaotic but but it gets twisted and that's what satan does he takes something that is that is true and he adds uh, falsehood to it so this this is it that and th- that's the point i'm making is that this just has this continuity between all all things now we come to greek mythical cosmology uh, in Greek thought, time existed first. There's no actual beginning. There's just always time. So, again, you have something that's existing, and time generates chaos, an enormous uh, space containing night, mist, and the upper regions are of air or the ether. Time commanded and the mist spun around with such speed that the mass congealed and solidified into the shape of a huge egg, which broke in two halves, which became heaven and earth. Isn't this time plus random chance generates matter? It's the same kind of thing. So you also have uh, Thomas Cahill in his book on the Greeks, uh, Sailing the Wine-Dark Sea, Why the Greeks Matter. He says in terms of their... Uh, their cosmogony says the Titans had been formed by Father Heaven Uranus and Mother Earth Gaia, uh, which had existed before any of the gods, having emerged from the primordial chaos whose children darkness and death had given birth to light and love, for night is the mother of day, which made possible the appearance of heaven and earth. So you see there's just this continuity there. Now, this is a, a very primitive form, but you can see the connections to modern evolutionary thought. And this brings into focus this concept called the great chain of being, something that you and I were never taught anything about in school. And I'm not sure, I was thinking about this the other day, when did I first hear about this? It was many decades ago now, but um, that it, it, this was standard to understanding origins and where everything come from and how everything related together. So the chain of being has other terms. It's called the continuity of being. It's called uh, in Latin the scala natura echel, uh, de etre or the chain of being. And this is, uh, we have to understand this terminology a little bit. What do we mean by being? What do we mean by this chain of being? So there's three Latin terms that will, I'll break it down and this will give you a little bit of an understanding of what we're talking about. And these Latin terms were developed into a very technical uh, philosophical system in the Middle Ages in the period of the, of the scholastics as they were using this terminology in understanding biblically uh, who God is and God's relationship to his creation. So ends in Latin is a word for being in itself, that is existence. Being is that part of us that makes us uh, brings that makes us ex- an existent. If we don't have existence, we're just an idea or a concept. Um, 
and that's brought out really in the second word, esse, which is uh, the basically the to-be verb in Latin and refers to the act of, existent, uh, of existing. Two things are necessary for any individual thing. The first is essentia, or whatness, the essence of something. You have to have essence, something that that is the content of something, and it has to exist. So you have existence and essence. Those are the two components that that are true for every everything that we see. It it has various uh, def, uh, def attributes and essence, and it has existence. If it doesn't have existence, it's it's just an idea or concept. So that's the third word is essentia, the whatness of a being, and that is what distinguishes one thing from another thing. So being or existence is distinct from the essence. It is it is that which gives something existence, okay? Now, in the Bible, in Exodus 3.14, when Moses asked God, who are you that I may go when I tell people, I go back to tell them you have sent me, who do I tell them sent me? And God described himself with the term, uh, I am who I am. That's the basic meaning of Yahweh. I am the self-existent one. So he is absolute being or existence itself. And then he creates out of nothing everything else that has existence. So that separates God from his creation. It makes him the creator, and all things come into existence by him. And apart from him, nothing exists that is. But when you look at the lie, the lie that is talked about um, in Deuteronomy and the lie here, uh, it is uh, the opposite of truth. And the lie is the foundation for the devil's worldview. It denies the creator-creature distinction, which is at the very root of Satan's original sin. And it involves, first of all, the denial of the creator-creature distinction. Second, this leads to the creature's assertion of independence. He is autonomous. He's independent. He is not dependent upon a creator. He is independent. And that leads to antagonism towards the biblical God because the biblical God is making the assertion that we are created by him and we are all dependent upon him uh, for everything. So this lie starts with Satan in Isaiah uh, 14, 13. God indicts him and says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. That's an interesting allusion to Mount Zephon, which was for the Syrian gods and goddesses, the equivalent to Mount Olympus for the Greeks. So uh, that's that, see that connection with the, the demons and mythology uh, has Satan uh, uh, 
the, or Hillel bin Shahar here, saying, I will sit on the Mount of Congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He's completely denying the creator-creature distinction. In Exodus 28:15 to 17, God indicts Satan here. He says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, mental attitude, sins of arrogance, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze upon you. So this is an indictment of Satan, and at the core he is rejecting the creator-creature distinction. And this is the lie that he seduces Eve with in the garden. In Genesis 3.1, the serpent was more cunning, more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, bringing out the creator-creature distinction. God is the creator of all things. And he, that is the serpent, said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden, questioning the authority of God? So first you have a denial of the creator-creature distinction, and then this is followed by a rejection of the authority of God, which means the rejection of Scripture, the rejection of absolute truth. Genesis 3.5, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. So he's tempting them. You want to be like God. You want to be the creator and determine your own destiny. Determine what reality is. You want to be a boy, but you don't have the right chromosomes. Well, you, that, why should that stop you? You want to be a girl, but you don't have the right chromosomes. So why should that stop you? You can just uh, change it. You can just have surgery. You can take medication. You can be anything that you want to be. And it's a rejection of God, God-defined sexes and God-defined roles for the sexes. In Romans one twenty one. because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and served the creation rather than the creator. So this is the lie. It's grounded on a rejection of the creator-creature or creator-creation distinction. It rejects divine authority in place of creaturely authority, which is autonomy or independence from God or arrogance. And third, it's hostility toward God. That's the fundamental. That's the core. Now, what are some contemporary forms of this? Now, I got this from the Interlocked series, Lesson 2. Now, if you're not familiar with Interlocked, there's a couple, Amos and Jen Kwok, who are in Singapore, and they have uh, studied through all of Charlie Clough's framework series, which is a little bit over the heads of even a lot of adults, but especially kids, And so they have taken this and they have created a 55-lesson series for 16-year-olds and up. And now they are working at uh, developing the lessons. I've got the I think they have the first 12 done for a children's 
series, and they have done an outstanding job. You can go to their website, interlock.com, and you can download all of the lessons. You can download, uh, uh, I guess it's PowerPoint, but they have all the illustrations, all of the charts, all the graphics and everything are available uh, for to be used in uh, Sunday school classes or teaching your kids or anything, and it's it's just absolutely tremendous. And so in there, they talk about these ways in which this denial of the creator-creature distinction is manifested in contemporary language. So you hear people talk about luck, and they say sometimes you're lucky and sometimes you're unlucky. There really isn't any explanation of why things happen the way they do. See, it's an impersonal universe, and there's just random uh, fate that's in charge. Our karma... You hear a lot of people allude to karma. If you do good, then good things will happen to you. And if you don't do good, then evil things will happen to you. And then you, uh, I hear this more and more. Well, the universe didn't want me to do that. The universe did this for me. Well, the universe is just made up of matter if you hold to Darwinian evolution. And so how does it have volition? How can it make decisions? It's, It's totally irrational. But when you reject God, the only thing left is irrationality. Uh, positive energy. If you're surrounded by positive energy, good things will happen. If you're surrounded by negative energy, bad things will happen to you. Or the horoscope. You go read your horoscope and, and oh, something bad's going to happen today. So if I fail my exam, it's not my fault. It's the, uh, the stars. Uh, and then the whole the force language. A lot of people don't uh, don't want to accept this, but I watched an interview um, with uh, who's the guy who came up with Star Wars? What's his name? What? George Lucas. George Lucas. Lucas. George Lucas. That's right. Okay. So George Lucas is interviewed, and he said, I saw this on a PBS special, and he said, I specifically designed the whole force mythology around Buddhism. And that's what he's communicating. He is communicating a monistic view of the universe with this impersonal force uh, that is promoted in all of the Star Wars movies. Other phrases that you hear are phrases like, well, listen to your heart. Well, the heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Uh, Be true to yourself. Well, you're a lousy, rotten sinner just like I am, and so don't be true to yourself. Uh, Trust your gut. Same problem. It's all about emotion. Feel good about who you are. Happiness is the goal of life. I once heard a a Christian uh, biblical counselor say, well, if if happiness is your goal in life, what do you think will make you happy? Well, why don't you just leave everything and go off to some some Caribbean island with all the booze and all the women that you can handle? Uh, That's not going to make you happy. So happiness is not the goal of life. The goal of life is to glorify God. As the Westminster Confession states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And apart from that, there's no meaning, happiness, stability, or joy in life. And the last one, just be a good person. So this is what 
uh, the chain of being deals with is is the real thinking that's behind this. So I'm going to stop here, and we'll come back and get into the basics of this uh, next time, next Tuesday night, as we continue our study of this. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to think through uh, the what it really undergirds the thinking of human viewpoint, satanic viewpoint, the viewpoint of paganism that permeates and penetrates every aspect of the world around us. This is worldliness. And, Father, we pray that as we go through this, it will give us some, some insight into why people think the way they do on the basis of their denial of you as a creator, their denial of you as the absolute authority and determiner of truth and error and right and wrong, and why they just want to make themselves little gods. And, Father, we pray that you would use that to penetrate our own thick-skinned thinking about sin and how we, too, fall prey because we fall into the trap of our sin nature, uh, wanting to be a little God and determine our own life and our own destiny. So, Father, we pray that as we think through these concepts that it will help us to understand that we aren't all that much better than the um, the ancient Israelites or the pagans because we have at the very core of our being, our sin nature, a desire to rebel against you as well. So, Father, we have to come and focus on those things that we might recognize that the sin that permeates each of our lives and expose that to us that we may learn to walk humbly before you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.